and suspicion. Through his many writings and lectures, he's contributed substantially to the debate on the issues of Muslims in the West and the revival of the Muslim world. He's written numerous books, the most recent of which include What I Believe, Radical Reform, Islamic Ethics and Liberation, both published by Oxford University Press, and The Messenger. He's an act, he is active both at academic and grassroots levels, lecturing extensively throughout the world on social justice and the dialogue between civilizations, treading carefully that precarious line between intellectual and political insider and outsider. He's currently president of the European think tank, European Muslim Network in Brussels. Tonight, Professor Ramadan will speak about his most recent book, The Quest for Meaning, which turns to the heart of his work and of the engagement with contemporary life. He explores the idea of a spiritual quest, which is at the heart of all great religions and which is central to human experience. This is a deeply unfashionable idea in our contemporary culture and, perhaps you may ask, an, un an uncomfortable one, one that fits uncomfortably in a school that's devoted to the social science sciences, though I would suggest that's perhaps a mistaken view. It's an idea that persists despite attempts to silence it. It's also something that needs to be acknowledged if people are to be genuinely open to pluralism. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Tariq Ramadan. Thank you. Is that okay? Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Thank you, Professor Kelly, for this introduction and this invitation here at this university. It's not the first time that I'm here. It's always a pleasure to come back. And this time is for a new book, which is a bit different from all the books that I have been uh, writing. And for those of you who have been following my work, mainly within the Islamic uh, field and taking, uh, uh, trying to, to tackle some of the issues of uh, Islamic thought and, and theology and, and principles and, and ethics. Um, this is a book which is something completely, not completely new in my life, but completely new for the readers uh, of what I, I have been trying to do uh, during the last uh, two decades. So let me come with a, an introduction about what was the, the purpose of this book, The Quest for Meaning, and to come to the substance of it. Uh, because uh, very often when you study philosophy and you come to the Muslim majority countries, philosophy it's not a good word. We are talking about religion, we are talking about principles, it's as if there is a conflict between philosophy and religion. And when we come to the West, the perception is when we speak about philosophy, we speak about great uh, uh, thought and, and thinkers and, and it's far from uh, anything which has to do with religion and the perceptions are that philosophy it's coming it's a bottom up uh, intellectual endeavor trying to come from our reason and our questions to some of the answers and philosophy and religion is exactly the opposite it's answers coming from on high that are imposed and 
in one case we have postulates and in other case we have dogma. Dogma is that, it, this, when we speak about dogma, these are the truths that are not proven, but we believe in them and this is the, the heart of our faith. And then we have postulates, it's the beginning of anything which has to do with philosophy. So coming from the two worlds and having studied, as you said, philosophy and, and having uh, written the first PhD on, on, on Nietzsche and the concept of suffering and Nietzsche as a historian of philosophy, I was trained in philosophy and trying to understand how you know, all these thoughts and, and these endeavors and these experiences coming from the West were so important, but also uh, with Islamic philosophers and that are neglected very often in the West, because if you want to get a PhD in philosophy in the West, very often you don't know anything about the non-Western philosophers. And when it comes to, uh, you know, Islamic uh, or, or even Jewish philosophers, it's as if they are not part of the whole journey or philosophical journey in the West. And if we go to, so, so I was trained on this and also in Islamic uh, and religious uh, scholarship through all what I've been doing within the Islamic tradition, but also interfaith dialogue and dealing with Christianity, with Judaism and other spiritualities very much involved in anything which has to do with Buddhism as well. Because I went there, I went to meet the Dalai Lama, I wanted to understand uh, also what it was all about, this journey, this spiritual journey of someone saying that there is a meaning without God. And then this book is really to try to bridge the gap. It's philosophy and religion together and to try to understand in which way we can reconcile the two experiences if uh, it were and to try to understand in which way we have answers that could be common even though our paths are completely different. So it's something which has to do with this without going towards syncretism. It's not to confuse everything, say, oh, it's all equal, no acknowledging the fact that there are differences, that there are different viewpoints, and that we have to respect this as the starting point of the journey. And this is where uh, my point was really to take an image to make it understandable. Very often, you are behind your window and you look at the ocean. And the starting point of our journey is this. If we accept that we have a window and do we look through our window, it's the starting point of this is the humility to acknowledge the fact, to admit that it's only a window, it's only a viewpoint, that there are other windows looking at the same ocean. So this starting point, it's the important state of mind, the mindset which is important. Because it's not enough to sit down here and say, I am tolerant, I am open-minded. If it's not coming from the bottom, of your heart, the deep understanding of life, that you acknowledge the fact that from within you are dealing with different viewpoints and that the world is open to all these windows. So the first thing is really this one. How do we get this intellectual modesty, this humility of this journey, which is the same for all of us? No one in this room can say, I don't know anything about the quest for meaning, because the quest for meaning is to be a human being. And to be a human being is to experience the quest for meaning, is why I'm here. So the starting point is this, is to get this sense. And then my book was, okay, I'm not going, there are two ways in fact. I'm not going to go from window to window and say what you know, the philosophers are saying about 
tolerance, about education, about freedom, or what the other religions are saying, or the monotheistic religion, is to do exactly the opposite. It's not to travel from window to window, but to plunge into the ocean. To come to the topic itself, to the object, and say, from the ocean, now I want to look at the windows. So not to look at the ocean through the windows, but to look at the windows through the ocean. And to take some of the main topics of our time, and to ask myself what is said by all these windows about the topic. And to accept the fact that there are windows. To accept the fact that no one has the only single exclusive response. You may think that there is only one truth. Of course, if you are a believer, if you are a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, or if you are a philosopher building this whole philosophical system, of course, at the end, you think that this is the truth that you are constructing or do you believe in. The point is not to deny this, but to accept the fact that with your own take on this truth, you have to acknowledge the fact that there are other paths, that there are other ways, that there are other windows and this ocean is the shared dimension for all of us. So it's an image, but I want you to get this in, to keep this in mind during this talk, because this is the starting point of it, is looking at the windows through the ocean. And then the object that we are studying, and I will come to, to some of the points that I'm making during this, uh, uh, in, in this book. So uh, it's not only speaking about religion, it's really speaking about I was trying, because this was, in fact, the way I was trained and what I wanted to do. It's to go to the ancestral spiritualities in Africa and in Asia. It's to go to Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism. It's to go through all the monotheistic, relig uh, monotheistic religions and also, of course, the philosophies the Asian philosophies, the Western philosophies, and to try to understand what are the answers that we can get. And some of the themes that I'm trying to, to, to tackle in the book are critical for our time. Uh, but behind this, what is the purpose? Why do I want to talk about that? It's for all of us to get a sense that some of our answers are common. This is one. The second is really to nurture through this journey and this initiation. What Karen Armstrong is saying in, in uh, uh, her review of the book, when she's saying, in fact, at the end of the day, it's all about education, about humility, and trying to get a sense that there is no way to come to a mutual understanding and living together if we go don't, if to, to get to understand the other if we don't start with our own self. In the Buddhist tradition, when you speak about compassion, it's not always compassion. It's not first the compassion towards the other. Start with yourself. Start with being compassionate with your own self. Because the way you are with your own self will tell you the way you are going to be with the other. And this is something which it's critical today. This simplistic attitude, binary vision, us and them, and, and, and thinking that you forgive first to the other and not trying to come to this understanding of the self, may be uh, the, the, the lacking, the missing link that is needed for our time. So here we are, and, and this is what I'm trying to do in the book. I took 14 specific themes and topics and try to go through all of them, trying to, to reach this, you know, critical thinking, diversity, and, and these are the, uh, representing for us tonight the ocean here. And so the first one, which is so important, is the quest for meaning, is the title of the book, and then the universal, universality, that you go to the east, you go to the west, you go to the north, you go to the south, 
the people are talking about our universality. What we believe in is the universal truth, the universal reality. And so many people are talking about this universality. How do we solve this problem? How can we get this sense that I'm not denying the fact that what you think and what you believe is the universality for you, but you cannot deny the fact that I have my own belief, that my belief is for me a universal one. How do you get that? How intellectually you can accept this and nurture a sense of respect uh, towards the other. So this is something which is important. Some of the critical questions of our time, how do we deal with faith and reason today? It's not an, a new discussion, a modern discussion. It's a very old discussion in all the religious tradition, in all the philosophical tradition, the relationship between faith and reason. Freedom, it's an essential discussion for us. What is the true meaning of reason, of freedom today, and in which we have to deal with it? And how do we have to nurture a sense of freedom in democratic society, in industrialized society, and the way we have to deal with uh, the, 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 the deep philosophical understanding of freedom and not only the social understanding of freedom, which is a necessary uh, dimension, yes, but it's not the only one. And then come fraternity and equality, female and male, and other topics on ethics, emotion and spirituality, education, tradition and modernity, sense of belonging and civilization, and love and forgiveness. These are themes that I'm trying to tackle. And what I want to do tonight with you is just, you know, in 30 minutes, it's difficult to go through all these themes and to just uh, uh, explain some of the dimensions of, of every single uh, uh, topic. What I want to do is just to take three, four of these topics and try to, to get a sense of what I'm trying to, to do and, and to share with, with you and uh, in which way we can go together. Because at the end of the day, if it's a, a book on philosophy and, and truth and responsibility, it's for all of us at the end of the day to try to say, okay, we all are talking about peace, living together, understanding each other. But this is a responsibility, it's not only a hope. It's not only something that we claim, it's not a postulate, it's a necessity of our time. This book is really about every single human being, every single citizen, who is able to ask the question of the meaning should also come with an answer of responsibility to take it and to try to implement it in her or his life. And it's a philosophy of responsibility, and this is why it's a philosophy of pluralism. A philosophy of pluralism is a philosophy of responsibility. It's not only to hope, because now people are dying, people are being killed for what they believe, people are being uh, discriminated, and it's a global world. We all know about that. It's just in front of us. We cannot deny the fact that we know. No one today can say, I don't know, or I didn't know. Now it's in front of us, and we have this responsibility. And it's a philosophical, civic responsibility, and a moral responsibility as well. So let me go to some of the, 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 the questions. And the first thing that uh, uh, I was trying to, to get is the quest for meaning. And the quest for meaning, it's, it's a very important starting point for this journey, which is, once again, as I said, an initiation for the philosophical, the deep philosophical uh, uh, question. If you look at us, throughout all the traditions and civilizations, the starting point is childhood. 
And the geneticist Albert Jacquard is saying, with a sense of humor, he's saying, you know what, we are born incomplete. So when we are born, we cannot survive if no one is there to help us, our mother, our father. So we are incomplete and we are physically in need when we are born. And then when we get to a point with the age of reason that we are complete and that's okay, you can go ahead alone, now we have intellectual and rational questions coming. So we go from physical dependency to intellectual independency. We are always in need. At the beginning, a physical need. And just after this, come the questions, why? And then we are in need of answers. And this need of answer is the very understanding Even all the traditions are telling you this. A human being, it's a being in need. In need first of people helping him or her physically and then intellectually. We need answers. And the quest for meaning is the starting point of acknowledging the fact that I am in need. I am in need with God or without God. The point is that this humble, this attitude of humility that I need answers to know why and how is my life, uh, how I'm going to, to deal with my life. And you know the three questions that are coming from the Kant uh, uh, philosophy, Kant was coming with three questions, which are the important question. What can I know? What should I do? And what can I hope for? What can I hope? And this is something which are the three questions that we will find. If you take all the philosophies and all the traditions, you get the, everything in these three questions. What can I know? This is the question to why. And this goes through Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Go to all the philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, all the traditions. Come to Buddhism and come to Hinduism. You will see that in one way or in another, these questions are everywhere. So this is the quest for meaning is telling us that we are in quest and we all have to get this humility that this quest is part of our journey. Mirza Eliad, who wrote a book on the history of religion, is saying that wherever he went to study people, very traditional uh, tribes or very sophisticated religion or societies, he is saying that at one point he always find this question here. It's as if he said that religions or spirituality or spiritual questions is part or is intrinsically part of the human structure, the, the reason, the, the, the structure of the human reason. It's part of us. So when we come with this, when we start with this quest for meaning, and we get this sense that we are all sharing this, it's a common destiny for all of us. And whatever is our answer, at least let us share the command, com, co, commonality of the, 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 the question, which is the question, uh, uh, why? So faith, it's coming for, from on high. It's the perception that the answers are coming from God. And philosophy is telling us you have to build out of your common faculty answers that are coming for human beings. So the atheistic answer is let us come to what is coming to, to all of us. And what is coming to all of us is our reason. Our reason is coming to all of us. So what we are going to get is when we share what our reasons, our common reasons is going to produce, this will be our common truth. So universality is going to come 
from the common faculty that we are sharing. While the religions are saying no, the commonality is not going from our shared reason or rationality, it's coming from the one who is creating us all. It's coming from God. So we have two ways here. And the point is this, when it comes to universality, we all claim that at one point the universal declaration of human rights is universal. Some are saying, no, it's not universal, it's coming from the West because it's rational, it's not coming from our tradition. And others are saying, no, we have something which is more universal, it's coming from Islam. We even had, or from Christianity, even have people saying, everything which is in the universal declaration of human rights is already in Christianity, is already in Judaism, is already in, meaning what? In Islam, meaning what? This universal which is coming from your common reason is already common from the common God the one God, and we are creating the conflict on this universality. The point is not on the universal, the point is in our minds. Is that, a, and I'm using this in the book, when you come to this discussion, it's like a mountain. There is one summit and many paths. And we have the, you should have this humility, it's coming from every one of us, to look at the mountain, acknowledging the fact that there is one summit, and this is the universal shared values. But there are many paths, and we have to accept that there are other slops and other paths to go to the summit. So you look from the, the, the bottom of the mountain, from the valley, you look at the mountain, accepting and acknowledging the fact that there are many paths. But we have two problems. And sometimes the mindsets here are problematic, is that you have some people saying, yes, that's true. There is many paths to the top, but the only one who is getting there is mine. You know that. And it could come from religions, and it could come from humanistic. It's, no, that's fine, you have part of the truth, but the complete truth, in, in, it's in only in my path. I'm using also the, the image that Rousseau is using by saying, you know, the first one, he, when he was speaking about the, the private property, he said, there is one guy who came and closed a ground. He said, this is mine. And he finds stupid people believing that this was his. And say, this is the starting point of, of private property. So this is the starting of everything which was, because the earth is for everyone, belongs to everyone, not to him. But he was able to do that. Linking this to something which is a very important discussion when it comes to universal and universality is also a question of power. He is talking. He has the power to say this is mine and the people have no power to resist or have accepting or are accepting the fact that he has the power. So when we speak about this intellectual discussion about universality, it also has to do with the power of the one who is speaking. But he's coming with this and saying this is because he's saying this is mine because he's the first one to get it. So you have another way to say, my, my values are universal because I was the first one to get there. So some are saying there is only one way which is mine, acknowledging the fact that there are other paths, or I was the first and this is my property. And if you look at sometimes the way in the West, we speak about very old traditions or very old uh, uh, religious systems or Buddhism, or other, it's, it's, you know, this quite sometimes it could happen that we are a bit arrogant. 
because we are confusing economic advance or development with something which is we were the first to get this so we have the monopoly on the universality of values and religions could do exactly the same with people having and this is what we are unfortunately sharing a lot a dogmatic mind the dogmatic mind is not only a religious mind it could be a very secular mind a, a, a dogmatic mind is the mind which is saying and you know very often we think that the dogmatic mind is an exclusive mind that's not true there are many features that can help us to get what is a dogmatic mind religious and non-religious mind is always a binary mind it's there it's right or wrong a binary mind is right or wrong. As am I right, the only sound conclusion is that you are wrong. This perception, this dogmatic mind, you can find it in all philosophy, in all religions. And it's wrong to accuse religions or philosophies or spiritualities to produce this. It's the minds that are reading the text, understanding the philosophy, that that, that become sometimes dogmatic in the way they read and the way they understand. So sometimes, instead of accusing the ocean, we have to understand the way they are looked at through the window. So to come back to the window and to ask ourselves in which way we, these people are looking at the ocean, which is the common shared values. So here this is the discussion about universality which is quite important in all our discussion today and I think that after speaking about this quest for meaning to acknowledge the fact when you deal with all this ocean of you know all these philosophies and these answers coming from so different you know part of the world and, and different civilizations and cultures and tribes from the very beginning with lots of you know sense and, and, and in depth you get the sense that here when we speak about uh, uh, humility intellectual modesty is there is but a shared universal and shared universal values and we have this is part of the initiation the philosophical initiation that we have to go through to get a sense of living together so it's not easy it takes effort to get that understanding it's a really uh, intellectual and spiritual uh, uh, exercise to get this understanding that, yes, I'm just on one path trying to get the summit, trying to get to the summit and to the top. And, you know, when I wrote this book, it was published last year in French, and the first journalist who came to me after reading the book and said, I have a question to you. I said, okay, fine. Are you still a believer? Look at that. It's quite interesting. He was not a believer. He's an atheist. And his perception is, if you are a believer, you sit on the top. And he said, I get it. You cannot just think that this, there is a diversity. And when you speak about diversity, it's as if you are compromising with your belief. While what I was telling him is, my belief is telling me that there are many paths. And my life, my experience is showing me that this mountain is the way I have to look at the mountain from the valley is to get this humility, which is the starting point of the human journey.
towards truth. So you get here a sense of the perceptions that we may have. And uh, Edouard Said was speaking once about the clash of ignorance. And my answer to this is that we are not experiencing a clash of ignorance. We are under, uh, experiencing a clash of perceptions that we are reducing the other. And we reduce the world to our window and to the way we are looking at it. There's two or three things that I wanted to say. And, and there is another discussion here. One of the, the topics is free, it's, uh, tolerance and respect. We are very, very often talking about tolerance. And we are happy with this. But we are forgetting history. Locke, Locke in the 17th century, when he, he, he wrote the book on toleration and a letter on toleration, when he, he, he wrote this letter, he was talking, and he was responding to Hobbes, in fact. Hobbes saying that, in fact, there is only one religion that should be ad admitted within a society, no other, which was, of course, Christianity. Locke is, is responding to this by saying to the power and to the church that's wrong. He was, of course, at that time, don't forget, 17th century, saying no atheism. It's out of question. We are talking about religions. And mainly in his mind is religions mainly within what he knew, which is Christianity, Protestantism, and Judaism. And he's talking to whom, in fact? He's writing a letter on toleration and talking to a powerful church, telling to this powerful church, now you have to tolerate the existence of the others. It's exactly the same with the treatise on tolerance of Voltaire, talking in France with the Affaire Calas, talking to power, telling them you have to acknowledge that there are other religions. In fact, tolerance is the right word when we speak to power. When you have the power to, to just to impose one religion, he's talking at that time, or they were talking as philosophers, as thinkers, to power to tell them, now you have to accept, to acknowledge. And the very meaning of tolerance is to suffer the presence of the other. I tolerate you. And if you come to someone in your daily life who is telling you, you know what, I accept your presence. I said, that's fine, thank you. <laughs> I accept. Who gives you the right to tell me that you accept me, that you tolerate me, that you suffer my presence? Get the point. It's a very important discussion. <clears throat> because no one here wants to be accepted or tolerated. You want to be respected. And respected is completely different. It's really here to be equal, on, the, on an equal footing. And with respect, there is something that you will find in many traditions, many traditions, in the monotheistic tradition and in the very old tradition and philosophy, is that you have to go beyond only acknowledging my presence, but trying to know me. We get respect if we have two conditions. The first one is on equal footing. We are talking as equal human beings. You don't have a power, a specific power, or you're not talking to me through a powerful status. If this, this was the situation in the 18th century, 17th century, that's fine. This was the time where we were dealing with this. But today, in our societies, what we are 
promoting is an equal status, equal citizens, equal human beings, equality. If we are serious about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, equality is the starting point. So it's equality. The second one is knowledge. You cannot respect if you don't know, if you don't try to know. So I told you, first, intellectual modesty and humility, acknowledging that there are different paths. But the second, you, the second consequence of humility is, I need to know the other. I need to know. And to acknowledge this, to admit that you need to know more about the other, is just to acknowledge the fact that you don't get it all, that they have something to give you. To respect me is to think that I could be useful in your life. That I'm as complex as you, and I can be useful for you to be better yourself. So it's equal footing and respect based on knowledge. This could be completely absent from any kind of toleration or tolerance in our daily life. And if we come to the very roots of tolerance at the very beginning, is something which is uh, understandable at that time, but we have to be careful not to import this and to use the same words without understanding the consequences, the potential consequences of such words that we are using and the way we are using them. So do I still have two or three minutes? That's okay. I mean, within my time, that's good. Uh, there are many other topics, and, and uh, the, the last one that I can uh, uh, um, talk about here, on maybe two things. The connection, there are two different chapters, but there is one on freedom, and another one on spirituality and emotions. I think that uh, we really have to talk about freedom. What do you mean when you say you are free? You know, Hay ibn al-Yaqazan, uh, the first philosophical novel, this was uh, uh, written in the 12th century. Hay ibn al-Yaqazan, you, you never heard about that, maybe. You have to know. <laughs> Intellectual humility here, which is good. Uh, it's Alive, Son of the Awake. This is the title. It was translated into uh, uh, Latin and then it was uh, uh, translated into uh, English it's the very, the very first philosophical novel and then if you read after it Robinson Crusoe you'll get exactly the same story you don't know that it is coming from Haim Neliakazan because in the way we construct our history some books were neglected arriving in an island alone and in fact, it's a philosophical novel. What do you do when you are alone in an island? Well, you should be free. You are free. No one is here to tell you, don't do this. And, and you know the, the, the Rousseau uh, 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 statement saying the, the, your freedom stops when the freedom of the other starts. You get that? There is nobody else. I'm free. And then the philosophical journey is that at one point he decides, no. I need law, I need rules. It's as if, in fact, to experience freedom, you need limits. No sense of freedom without limits. And he's alone, but he needs limits, he needs rules. And he starts to put rules for himself to get a sense of his freedom. Can get that? Interesting. No freedom without limits. 
Who said that afterward? Kant, Rousseau are saying exactly this. No freedom if there are no limits. And if there are no limits, there is no freedom, and then there will be no responsibility. No freedom, no responsibility, no rules, no sense of freedom and rules to get your responsibility, to respect or not the rules. This is it. This is our common status. And then out of this, you build this sense of how do I get this freedom? Is it only a freedom with what is going from outside? And we all know the deep freedom is that all this question. If there is a God, he knows everything. If he knows everything, I cannot be free. Everything is written. Quello, Maktoub. It's written. Paolo Coelho wrote a book on Maktoub, but this is a very old tradition. It's done already. No freedom. And we have this in Christianity, in Judaism, in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Islam. All this discussion about how could I be free with a God who knows everything? And others saying, even without God, and this is the Spinoza understanding, is that there are rules, there are causes and effects, and we cannot just go get out of it. So no freedom. And you have the Jewish answer. There is only one way to be free. You need to, your will should merge with God's will. So when you want what is to be coming, this is where you are free. When you want, what should it be? So this is freedom. Try it. <laughs> Very difficult journey, uh, spiritual journey is how do you educate yourself to get to this meaning that I want what is going to be. And then others are saying, no, that's not this at all. This is not the answer. Freedom is not about this. Freedom is to come back to the self. It's when you get what is deep down in your heart that you are very free. Because it's very easy to say, I'm free when I do what I want. But there is a second question coming from behind. Are you sure that you want what you want? And we know today, in this world of communication, that very often you think that you want what you want and many people want you to want what you think you want. <laughs> we know that. This is mass communication. This is psychology at work. We know that. How do you free yourself to be able to check that I want really what I want now? It's coming from me. It's not coming from this pressure. So this is something which has to do with the way we deal with our emotion and our spirituality. And we know now how emotions are working. What is a danger for all of us is emotional politics, driven by fears and driven by signals touching our brain. And we know how it works, the neurosciences. And I'm just talking about this in the book, coming the, with the whole picture of how it works, that we have signals coming to our brain and it, the way it works. Joseph Ledoux in, in the, the psychologist when he was trying about this and you all heard about the, this uh, uh, emotional intelligence, the way it works with our thalamus and going to the amygdala or going to the neocortex. The neocortex is when we think and the amygdala is what we react. And sometimes it's not going to the neocortex, it's going straight away with one synapse straight to the and this is why you have a coup d'etat. 
an emotional coup d'etat is that you cannot just and what he's saying is saying what you know what if you want to be free you have to master this because anyone who know who knows how to get to the signal of your brain straight to the amygdala is taking over you think you are free you react emotionally I'm I'm free I, this is me not it's not you it's just a signal and then spirituality and all the religions, all the spiritualities, all the philosophies, all the philosophies, even Socrates, when he was talking about body, he was thinking, you have to master. So the intelligence, the emotional intelligence of today is the very old philosophy of yesterday. How do you check? How do you master? How do you get this freedom? How do you get to this spirituality? And spirituality is about what? It's about liberation. And liberation with spirituality, you need this freedom. And the freedom, you need rules. How do you get that rules? And there is answer here, and I will end with this, coming from us. I'm always taking this example because any one of us could understand. Very often we talk about, you know, do we need rules and how, and all what I'm talking about, if we want to live together, do we have to go through something which takes efforts and, and you know, this intellectual discipline? intellectual humility and art is a very good example when you listen to a pianist and you can see that he is just very very free it's as if he is improvising and you look and say oh that's very simple it's as if he doesn't need any technique he's free he's free to improvise to do it as if he is completely free of any kind of techniques and in fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's because he mastered the techniques that he's able to improvise in such a way. He's free out of a, a work on his own mastering the technique, which is exactly what the psychologists are telling us. Check, master your emotion. This is the best way to get this freedom which is coming from within. All these questions are once again in the ocean, but we have many windows to look at them. Psychology, philosophy, religions, and this is what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to share this with you and telling you, look at these answers. We can get a sense of humility, a sense that we have to be involved in the discussion. It's an intellectual, personal involvement here. It cannot just be something which is a, a theoretical discussion on this. All what I said now cannot be uh, discussed if it's not in one week's experience in our personal life. What do we need for that? And my call for all our schools throughout the world is really to reconcile ourselves with many disciplines. The first one is history. Because a sense of history is very important to get this. Even in, in our modern society, we are losing memory. We are losing memory. We don't know enough about the past, about all these traditions. The second is to know more about religions as well and to get a sense of what the religions and spiritualities are saying. The third dimension here is about philosophies. It's really time for us to understand if we want to come back to uh, uh, a better understanding philosophy, it's so important. And the last one is arts. Because in arts, there is something which has to do with aesthetics, with quest for meaning, quest for uh, getting a meaning for our life. So all these disciplines are so important for us. So it's a book, a journey, 
going all these topics. I just get three or four of them tonight for you, but helping us to come to uh, a better understanding. My point is really this one. I don't want a peaceful coexistence. I got this, a statement say, oh, it's a book to promote a peaceful coexistence. I don't, I don't want a peaceful coexistence. It's just you are just near to me and I'm in peace with you. I want a living together which is a constructive, proactive living together. It's something which is much more just peaceful. We want peace, of course. It's all about peace. But is through this interaction, living together, being able to listen, to take, to give, and to, to, to take from others. It's something which is a much more important coming together through our personal, individual, respective path to understand that at the end of the day, we hope for the same top, the same summit, the same, the same mountain, the same universal values that are so important for us. So, so once again, when I look at this room and I'm coming with, you know, I was surprised when I was just showing people, seeing the people entering, that you are coming from different cultures, different uh, uh, backgrounds, and at the end of the day, this is where it's not only enough to sit, to sit near the other, but really to share this uh, so important uh, uh, values and, and principles that are coming to us, accepting that we have different paths but common values. Thank you. Okay, we, we have some time for questions, but before we start, can I just ask you to recognize my authority and the rules that I'm going to impose on your freedom to ask questions so that this actually works. We have some roving microphones, so if you would indicate by putting up your hand, I will try and um, catch you, but don't speak until you've been handed a microphone. Okay, we've, got, we've got quite some time for questions, and, and Dr. Amaran's quite happy to take them. So if I can start, one at the front, and then behind, and then one at the far side there. So I'll take these three first, and then I'll come back and ask you to show your hands again. Okay? Thank you very much. My name is uh, Dr. Hussain. I'm a medical doctor, in fact, a psychiatrist. I'm not a philosopher, neither a professor of theology. And I can just quote Alexander Pope, who was an English poet, who said, presume not God to scan, for proper study of mankind is man. And this is exactly what you're telling us about. But coming to the take-home message, I was wondering, what am I taking from this man in my mind to my home when I return to Canterbury tonight? I think what you're saying is this. Don't look, see. Don't hear, listen. Don't inhale, see the smells, feel the smells. What you're saying is don't just move from one place to another, but see the changes in geography when you're talking about the summit standing in the valley and looking at the paths that lead up. And I could go on and on, don't just feel, but actually <laughs> listen with your mind, but I'm not here to lecture like you. I'm <laughs> I'm here to ask you a very simple question, and the simple question is this. Leave aside the relationship between Christianity and Islam and other religions, and the killings that go on, the crusades, which have gone on for centuries. Come down to earth, Professor Tariq Ramadan, which is this. 
we have got to look at ourselves and set our own house in order. What I'm talking about is different sects within the same religion. The Christians, the Roman Catholics and Protestants, the Muslims, the Shias, the Sunnis and the Amdis. We go into each other's mosques, take out our guns and start killing. We all believe in the same faith, Islam. We all believe in the same prophet, same God. So don't you think that we should start first by, no matter which religion we belong to, by setting our own house in order and only then go into the deeper philosophical meaning of freedom and also peace and also forgiveness and also what you said, reconciliation. So where do we start? How would you like us to start with it? Thank you very much. I'm sorry I was a bit long. Oh, I'm sorry I was a bit long, but I felt I had to say this. Thank you very much. Thanks. Let's take the three questions together. So the second question, and then the third on this side, and then we'll have... Uh, <clears throat> well, first of all, thank you for a very inspiring talk. I don't know the context of your work, and I, so I'm responding to what I heard today. And there's three points that I wanted to make, three questions. The first one is, are you proposing universalism? Because universalism has always been the language of empire where the difference and is being obliterated and we're all together and the ocean is the same, the ocean is, salt, is salty everywhere has always been traditionally the language of empire. The second point is every citizen, you said, has to live together, every single citizen what is emerging in the last few decades is a new subject, is a non-citizen. So what about the non-citizen, the dispossessed, the uh, illegal immigrant, the homeless, which is emerging more and more as somebody with no philosophical uh, view, with no uh, human rights. And third and last, I personally have no interest in, in getting to the summit. Thank you. Third question. Yep. Thank you. Um, hi, so I'm, I'm Dean Peters. I'm a philosophy student here at the LSE. Um, and again, it's this, this image of the, the summit, right? And it's this image of we're all going on different paths to the same summit. Um, so that's quite optimistic, and it might be true, but we really have no idea whether it's true. It could be that we're all going on different paths to completely different destinations. And in fact, we're only going to know whether we're going to the same destination once we get there, right? which is not even on the horizon. Right? So firstly, why do you think this is true, given that we have no evidence in its favor? Secondly, my concern is that you rely on this assumption that we all are on the same destination a little bit too much, right? Because it seems your account of tolerance and mutual respect is premised on this notion that we all go into the same destination. How do we build a society when firstly the destination is nowhere in sight and secondly with the possibility that we'll never get to the same destination? How do we build a society based on mutual respect um, where there's no possibility uh, of reconciliation? We're just on irreconcilably different sets of values. Okay. Uh, good questions. Um, 
about what you, you are uh, uh, saying. First, in, in the book, I'm also talking about uh, ethics of independence and independence of ethics. Also talking about this critical thinking that we need to have towards our own answers and our own within you know, our spiritual community, philosophical community, society, nation, anything, culture, this is the critical thinking. But the point for me is that what you are expecting and hoping is that people trying to start within their own you know, community and to do the job of you know, reconciling and, and to deal with this diversity which is when it is ill-managed uh, uh, becomes uh, divisions and, 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 and conflicts. This is exactly my point. This is exactly my point. Is if you want to go to a better understanding within, which is the intra-community dialogue, intra-cultural uh, dialogue, intra within our cultures, our societies, our nations, our religions, and also with the other around, at one point there is this understanding of uh, this a philosophy of pluralism. How do you deal with plurality within your own community? And to do this is you have to educate the people. You have to educate the minds. We have to educate the people to get this sense. So this is exactly what I'm trying to do into the, with this book, is how do you get this philosophy of pluralism? To be able to say, I'm a Christian, but there are other Christian ways of understanding and responses. I'm a Muslim, but within Islam there are many interpretations. I could be also Buddhist, because if you go towards you know, the Buddhist tradition, far from this I romanticized Buddhism that we have in the West, there are lots of conflicts within. People not accepting interpretations, and I would say that this is how do you shape this mind to educate this. So this is where we have to start. And, and this is what I'm trying to do, is, is by accepting the fact that even when you were talking about Islam, even within Islam, there are many windows. And there is one path, but many windows. But the perception one path is, is and for all the religions, is in, is, it is the same. So I would say that uh, it's not you know, dreaming about something, it's really to try to, to educate the people, to educate, to, to shape this understanding, and in which way you have to take this as a personal responsibility. It's a personal journey ending with personal responsibilities. So this is, this is where we have to start within and outside, and, and this is what I'm trying to, 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 to get. But I, I would say that uh, sitting and saying, you know, we have to go beyond divisions and we have to try, without working on the people, without working on the individuals, without getting this, you know. My, my main problem is not with texts, is not with Karl Marx texts, is with the, the readers. It's not with, you know, the Quran or the Bible, it's with the readers, it's the way they read and sometimes the dogmatic minds with this ex exclusivist binary vision of reality that you find everywhere. And if someone, you know, sometimes the people who are skeptical and having this philosophy of skepticism, they are very dogmatic. Because, because they are skeptical, if you believe, you are dangerous. So they are right, you are wrong. And then you have this binary vision. You can't be dogmatic in that way as well. So this is where I think that we have to start, and this is what I'm trying to do. Uh, no, I'm not advocating something which is, you know, the universalism that we have uh, promoted by empire. What I'm saying is that 
if you are serious with all the traditions, religious, but also philosophical, you know, anything which is coming from Socrates and, and, and the whole Greek tradition, all the uh, uh, spiritualities in the East, with you know, perception of uh, uh, Buddhism, within every single tradition, you have this claim on universality. So I'm not saying, oh, there is a universal. I'm just acknowledging the fact that, yes, I get it. I get the fact that we are all talking about universality. The point is, what your, your universality is saying about the others? This is what I want to, to know. This is a critical question. Tell me what your universality is saying about the others. If it's taking over like empire, this is dangerous. If it's accepting this diversity, that there are other paths, that's the, the, the starting part of a discussion. So to deny the fact that there are universals in order to avoid this you know, arrogant empire attitude, I think would be wrong. We have to come with a critical understanding of acknowledging the fact without coming to, towards something which is taking over or a colonizing mind, not imposing. Now, uh, the second thing which is, comp I completely agree with this. When I'm talking to you here, I'm speaking about a status of human beings being citizens. But I would say that any citizen who is forgetting that you are human beings before being citizens is not getting it. This is why it's quite important to use our, and this is, you know, I'm always talking in this book. It's not, it was not clear tonight because I don't have time, but I'm also talking about this politics of power. We need to talk about power. You want to talk about peace? Talk about power. Because, you know, this peace without power is a dream. But when we are citizens in a, a country, we have a specific power. I want to use this power for the sake of the powerless, for the sake of the people who have no status in our society. So this is exactly what I'm talking about in the book. I'm talking exactly about what you are saying, is that to use the power of citizenship in order to speak about the uh, you know, not documented people, the immigrants, and, and because this is the, the problem of our time, really. It's really, uh, and anything which has to do with emotional politics is to talk to the people who have power about their fear in order to forget the people who have no power because they are scary and they are threatening our stability and our economy and our societies. So I completely agree with this. And you will find this dimension is really there in anything that I'm trying to do. It's not to use you know, uh, our status as citizen to forget the humanity of human beings. And the last point is, you are not interested to get to the top. I, this, is, this is a very good point. You know why? Because you are making my day. <laughs> I exactly want you to accept that I'm interesting in the top. And that I am acknowledging the fact, and I respect the fact that for you there may be no top at all. You don't get it. You don't want it. It's not, it's not, it's not even your, uh, your desire to get this answer or to, to get this universal value. Okay. Okay. Hopefully, you will have people making a big deal out of it. So it's all about disrespect. But it's a very important thing. It's a very important thing. Is that you have people saying, 
I don't care about certainties. I'm very happy with my doubts. That's fine. But if you are happy with your doubts, your doubts you should also help you to get a sense of respect for the people who are looking for certainties. And this is a very important discussion in our modern societies, in the, the postmodern societies as we call our cities now. Now, about uh, uh, are we going to the same direction? You know, I'm using two images in the book. I'm using this one. I'm also using the desert, which is this infinite space that why I'm using this? Because this is exactly what I want to avoid, to think that because I'm speaking about one top, I'm speaking about the only one destination. No. What I'm saying here is not a question of destination, it's a question of an answer. We are all trying to get an answer. This is the destination. And you can tell me, no, that's wrong. I don't want an answer. I say, that's fine. This is your answer. <laughs> you don't get out of it. That at the end of the day, the quest for meaning, it's to get an answer. To get an answer for why I'm here. And even someone like Heidegger, for example, saying there is no answer. You have to build your own answer. And someone like uh, uh, Sartre, following in the footsteps of Heidegger and the existentialist atheist, uh, saying, you know, it's all built out of our, my rationality. I am creating my own essence. And the Buddhists saying that at the end of the day, even, you look at this, the one who got it right from the beginning was Nietzsche. He said, I have a problem with destination. You know why? Because if you say I'm going somewhere, it means that there is an end. So I don't want this end. So the time is coming back. He changed the linearity of time into something which is a cycle. With the cycle, there is no beginning, no end, no destination. He changed the meaning with the form. And this was something which was deep. He got something which was deep in the Western philosophy, but not only in the Western philosophy, coming with the Buddhist tradition and coming to the cycle and the cyclic dimension of time. The point for me is that's fine. At the end, I don't have a problem with this. What I'm assuming here is that whatever is your take on this, a, a way to go, a path to go, a summit to reach, or a desert in which we are lost, the main point for me out of the image is the question and the answer that we are trying to get. Now, what you are telling me is that uh, I'm assuming this, that uh, what if there is nothing like this. And there is nothing which is common. And we, are, we do not have common values. I would say that this is a rational postulate which is contradicted by history of thoughts. Because if you are serious with all the religious traditions and the philosophical traditions, and what is said in the very, you know, in the, the spiritualities without God, or spiritualities with God and transcendence and imminence, you will get a sense that at the end of the day, there are common responses that you cannot deny. That they are common. So today, with our rational text, say, no, 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 there may be complete, yes, there may be conflicting values. I'm not denying this. Of course, they be me denied. But they can, they can be also common values. And the point for me is to struggle for what is common without denying the fact that there could be conflicting values. 
and I would say that this is the, I see it as the wise philosophical take on that, and also religious take on that. Let's take some more questions. Over here first, gentleman on the side there, and then one at the very back, so, yes, first, second. Hi, my name's Freya, and I'm a political sociology student at the LSE. Um, I'd like to ask you a question, if I may, on the recent French vote on the headscarf, um, and why you think the headscarf maybe has become a symbol of otherness in contemporary France uh, and Britain, but mainly France, considering the vote that's just been passed. My name is Aisha, I'm a LSE law student, and my question is more of a practical nature. Um, I understand the philosophies, I mean, a lot of it goes over my head, but I need to understand how do we counter this legally, because at the level where the laws are made, it's all about tolerance, it's all about what you cannot do. You know, you can wear the scarf, but you cannot wear the whole um, jalab. I mean, there's always a question of tolerance rather than respect. And I know we can do this as individuals, but how do we give them the humility? How do we explain to them that you know, there is a common ground? How do we implement that legally? That's my question. Thank you. Third question over on Actually, it was, it was the gentleman in the blue shirt behind you. Sorry. Hi, thank you very much for the talk. Um, I took from your words that everyone must realize that their point of view is one of many. I have two questions. The first is, don't you think in some ways that undermines the quest for meaning? Without right and wrong, how do we find meaning? And then my second question is, do you think that if everyone agreed on the same right and wrong, we would be able to live in harmony or some, si some sort of utopia? Thank you. What, what was the second question, sorry? If everyone, thought, if everyone agreed on right and wrong and everyone followed the same path to the summit, would, would we live in a utopia? Okay. Question at the very back, and then the question down there. Hello, thank you for your speech. Uh, well, I will have uh, some questions that are more or less in the same line than the others. And just, of course, from my intellectual humility and considering that could be I don't have the knowledge, I would like to ask you if you don't think that formatting minds is a kind of manipulation, that how you know how you give in the right formats, and also that it's not much more simple that we look inside and we'll, without the burden of our beliefs, and we try to find out what is more respectful and more equal for all of us. It's just an uh, <coughs> opinion. <laughs> yes, I, I, don't, I don't get the, the last part of the question. You don't really think it's much more simple to find out inside of us what is the equal or the fair thing or the respect than trying to know what is that concept in the knowledge of everyone? Because everyone has its own knowledge, of course, but we are like 5,000 million on land. And then one last question, the gentleman at the front. Who was going to? Yeah, hello. My name is Zadir Juhadi. I'm a graduate from Cambridge University. Could you speak into the? That's it. Yeah, hello. My name is Zadir Juhadi. I'm just graduated from uh, Cambridge University. My question is, just we spoke earlier about freedom and uh, 
we spoke about freedom and how to reach and different ways how to reach the summit. So if we if we don't have if in the absence of freedom, how we can have different ways to reach the the summit. So that means if we're not free, so that means there are other people they're gonna they're gonna show us the path to reach the the summit. So actually we don't have different ways to reach this, the summit. So a number of political and practical questions and some deeper philosophical ones. Okay. <laughs> but by the way, it's exactly what I want to, to provoke with such a book, because I think that if we really want to be able to, to live together and to move on and, and to get this philosophy of pluralism, which is a personal philosophy and a, and a collective com, uh, community philosophy, it's important. About the, the, the headscarves in, in France, uh, I have been talking about this in many other books, and, and the one, the book which is the, the one before that one, what I believe I am speaking about that, but I'm also speaking about some of the, 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 the problems uh, that we are facing today. Because Today, in our societies, we have a problem with diversity and pluralism. And you know, we are struggling on ideological uh, understanding and definitions. For example, today in the Anglo-Saxon societies, we speak about the failure of the multicultural society and the multicultural model. And on, in, in France, for example, we speak about, oh, for, by the way, in France, the multicultural model is just what we should never do. And in France, just two days ago, uh, uh, the president, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, is saying that the French model of integration is failing. It's a failure. Uh, and uh, the secular, uh, individualistic, or uh, the, the, the integration of the individuals is the perception that we have uh, in France. And I think that uh, both the people who are speaking about the failure uh, of the model of integration are wrong. It's not a failure, it's not failing. It's, it's, I would say it's not true. This is political discussions and political uh, ideologies that are nurturing fears and nurturing the sense that we are not getting what we want. If you come back now to what is happening, in fact, the problem that we are facing in all the European countries, mainly, but not only, but mainly in Europe today, is something which has to do with the new visibility of the Muslim. So we talk about headscarves in France, or the burqa. We speak about uh, the minarets in Switzerland. Four minarets in the whole country. It's just a controversy. <laughs> and think about it. Think about it. It's a, a new visibility. But what does this new visibility say? Is it saying, in fact, that the European Muslims are still segregated and not being uh, a part of the society, or, or is they are they saying exactly the opposite? Is that the first generations were not visible, they were completely geographically segregated, not visible. We want you to work for us and one day you go back home. And the people who came were exactly uh, thinking exactly the same. We come here, we do the job, and we go back home. Now the second, third, and onward generations, they stayed. And because they stayed, now they are getting out of the geographical ghetto and they are more visible in the streets, which is exactly the opposite of what is said. It's not a new community, which is a segregated community. It's an old community, which is now opening up, reaching out, being visible. 
So when we speak about the failure that we are confusing all this discussion about you know social problems, is that the, 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 the headscarf is just a symbol of this new visibility of uh, religion which was not visible before in the cultural landscape in all the European countries. Now we have mosques, that we have minarets, that we have, and we have headscarves, and we have this presence, and we have also colors. Because many are saying, you know what, you Muslims, you want to be accepted, tolerated, just be invisible. <laughs> Only good Muslims are the invisible Muslims. But look at me now, how I'm going to change my color to be less visible. Because at the end of the day, it's my visibility. So I may just no have a uh, uh, beard and anything else, but you have people coming from all around. We cannot do this. And you know, the, the Front National in France is saying the best way for the Muslims is to change their name. Stop with Ahmad. Call yourself Alain. That's good. <laughs> no, you are laughing. They are gaining ground. They are gaining ground. Oldest, you know, be careful. The, the far-right parties are not growing and increasing. But their rhetoric, what was yesterday said by only populist and far-right parties, is now said by traditional parties. The French president is not far from that. What he said two days ago is really scary. It's really scary. So I would say it's all part of this visible dimension. If we want to go beyond this scary visibility, it's really to come to the very essence of pluralism and to stop with these loaded you know, words of multiculturalism and say, it's now we have no choice. Willing it or not, we live in pluralistic society and we should develop within our society a philosophy of pluralism. How are we going to get the sense of this diversity in colors, in cultures, in religions, abiding by the same law and, and, and following, but we have different religions and cultures and, 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 and paths. And this is what we have to nurture, to go beyond this emotional reaction to visibility to an intellectual take on diversity. So this is how I see this working today in France. And I think that uh, the law that was enforced in 2004, and now this discussion about the Niqab and the Burqa, these are laws that are just showing how much the French people are uh, frightened uh, by this new presence. They are not all racists, but they are pushed. And they are, they, these you know, status are nurtured by parties that are populist, and some of them are clearly racist. And I would say that this is why we have to talk about that. But once again, it's my answer, it's part of what I'm trying to do, not from only from within the Muslim community, but as a human being, as a citizen, uh, with the, the power uh, of the intellect and the power of the social, political, and civic commitment to some of the values that we are sharing. The second uh, question is what you are saying about law and tolerance. I completely agree with you on that because, uh, and this is what I was saying, is that when you speak about peace and when you speak about tolerances, tolerance has to do with power. And in our societies, even in democratic society, you have the people who have the power to read the law and to enforce the law. And it's always the same, once again. If you trust the people on which you are going to enforce the law, you are inclusive. You are bringing them with it. 
But if you don't trust them, you are using the law to protect them, to protect yourself from them. So you are tolerating or not, you are accepting or not. This is a status of power. This is right. Now, from within, for us, as citizens, if we are serious about equality, it's at least from where we are to be able to challenge the common law in the name of the common status and also the common humanity that we are sharing. So I don't disagree with you that there is a power uh, factor here. We should acknowledge it. This is, you remember, Gandhi, uh, Ahmed Khan responding to Gandhi. Gandhi was, you know what, the Dalit, you should call them Harijan, children of God. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to call them son of God. These are oppressed people. They are pariah. This is the way they have to be called because this is their status. Stop dreaming and using words that is not reflecting their status. It has to do with power. These people are Dalit. They are not Harijan. And this was a struggle. We like today to speak about, you know, the Gandhi attitude towards this. It's all good when you have power. It's all good when you are a symbol, but not when you are oppressed. You know, be careful with the symbols hiding the, the, the reality. Like in France, for example, we have three women coming from, you know, North Africa, French. It's as if we get it. I'm sorry, these are all symbols hiding the reality of so many discriminated people on the ground. So I would say here that when it comes to law, we have to acknowledge that there is a power struggle in the way we read the law, in the way we enforce the law, and we have to go towards this understanding that we are talking about equality. And if we want to, there are two things that are important. Education, it's important, and this is why education on the philosophical dimension here. But the second point, it's time. It's time because very often with people coming and settling down and becoming citizens, they get this power, this understanding. And then when you get the power of you know, the language, the power of the law, you get involved in the discussion. So we have to be very co uh, cautious, uh, not within the society uh, being too uh, in a hurry, as for some answers, but also we have to educate the people here to be able to, de to deal with this, you know, immigrants, with these newcomers, as we call them, the uh, non-documented people, you know, that we call them clandestine and, and we are criminalizing them the way we are doing. This is the reality of our world. So I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about a utopian attitude here. It's a very, a very, uh, 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 an attitude which a philosophy of pluralism for me has to be a committed attitude towards justice, and it has to do with struggling for peace. It's struggling for equality. It's, it takes effort. It's not, I'm not trying to help you to go towards a journey where you are going to dream. Dreaming is good, but it depends when and with whom, because this could be also something which is uh, uh, pushing the people or to forget about the, 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 their rights and, and uh, the way they have to deal with that. So the point that I wanted to make here is that there is a psychology of law that we have to take into account when it comes to power and, and the way it's enforced. Uh, quickly, uh, about uh, uh, the fact that when we think about the, the truth and, and the fact that there are many other truths undermining ours, I would say, I would say the opposite. I would say the, the, the opposite because I think that uh, 
it's a, a, a state of uh, weakness if you think that your path is the only one in denying anything to the other. Is that the only one? Is in fact this attitude of the one who thinks that he or she is powerful because she denied the power or he denies the power of, of, of other or the capacity of the other. I would say that my capacity of listening to others, to take from them, to learn from them, it's really to, to acknowledge my humanity. If there is something which is absolute power, if there is a God, he is the only one to get that. For us, is always a, get a, 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 a sense of sharing, and out of this sharing to get a better understanding of who I am. So this is what I call humility. You know, in many of our discussions that we have in interfaith dialogue, for example, or intercultural dialogue, or dialogue of civilizations, you know, I was invited so many times, that's all fine. But sometimes you sit and say, I have a problem with all these discussions because they are all very nice thoughts. But you look at some of the people, the way they are talking about the other, saying that we have to have these ideas, it's full of arrogance. You know the arrogance of openness? I said that maybe we have all to work on ourselves, this sense of humility that we can take, that uh, we are not talking about, you know, very traditional spiritualities, and we, you know, this, this attitude that we may have, so it's not undermining, I would say it's, it gives strength to, to this attitude. I, I, I would prefer that. I, I know it's not easy. It's easier just, it's easier to be uh, a fundamentalist, uh, close-minded, and to say that this is my truth, and to be a dogmatic mind, than to be an open mind with all what I'm saying here with this uh, experience. Um, I think, yes, it's to think that we can all go towards the same path, that we will follow it, I think it's wrong and it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Uh, because once again, I, I, and just to make it clear, that in the desert or in the mountain, to acknowledge the fact that there are many paths, to acknowledge the fact that there may be one truth, but we are, there are many quests. There will be one book, but many readers. All this, this is something which is, in fact, if I understand something about rationality coming from the Socrates uh, philosophy or from our religions or from Buddhists, for example, the tradition, it's all about this. You get the sense of this deep truth, but you get the sense of human diversity. So, so it's something which, it's, it's intellectually paradoxical, it's spirituality very consistent. And sometimes there are things like this. It's like in love. There are things that are rationally, you know, paradoxical, but when you love, you find it completely consistent. Say, yes, I get that. <laughs> but spirituality is the same. And I would say that this is something that we have to experience as well. And uh, about the, um, what you said about the right format and, and this is what I'm saying, in fact, that you have to come back to your own self. But it's not enough. I think it's not enough because the self is a world, an open world, but it could be a jail. And this is once again what we got from, you know, the Greek philosophy, 
the starting point was this, come to the self, you know, all this uh, way of uh, giving birth to your thought, the, the pedagogy that Socrates had with the people is come to yourself, there are truth in yourself. But you really need to get out of yourself and to know more about, about what is uh, around you. You know, the poet Rainer Maria Rilke was saying something once that a poet was sending him his poem, poems. I said, do you find this good? I said, first the, first, the only fact that you are asking me if this is good is a problem. Because you should feel out of, from, you, from, from you, the bottom of your heart and, and, and because it's an imperative of yourself that you have to read, don't ask if it's good. If you find it good, it's good. Don't care about what I have to say. And he said, he added something else. If you look at the landscape, and you see in the landscape that it's a very poor landscape, never blame the landscape, but your sight, your eyes. You are the poverty of the landscape, because the landscape is never poor. Why and how are you going to get a sense of your own poverty? Your lack of answers is this interaction with nature, environment, the other. The other is, is, is a necessity to help me to increase. So, once again, you can get out of your own personal quest and, and look to your answers. But I would say that, uh, that, might, that might be good and that might be wrong. And then this interaction is quite important. So I would I would say that we always need this knowledge of the other. We always need to get maybe answer. And, and once again, is it through a, a, an organized system, a religion, a spirituality? I don't know. I don't know. This is you to answer. This is your own choice. And no one has to impose this onto anyone else. But let us come to this starting point that uh, whatever is your decision is a window and not more than a window. And it might be good to know that there are other windows and you have to learn. I think that education is a way towards humility and uh, this religious, cultural, philosophical education, it's important and we need this a sense of uh, community. You know, I am dedicating this book to the semicolon. I'm saying, you want why? Semicolon, yes, why? I said, because it's good, it's uh, you, you, you get with the semicolon a sense of a complex sentence. <laughs> Think about it. Not a simple sentence. And it's helping us to get to, to this. So, so this is what I got from your answer. I hope that I, I got it right. But this is not really, I'm sorry, because I got it, the second part of it is inside us that we can get this truth. And I think that it's not only that. About, about the last question on freedom, uh, you have philosophy and religions and some interpretations in religion, not all the, the interpretations saying that there is no freedom, so there is no, uh, it's, you can just do whatever you, you want, but at the end it's already decided. You had this, you know, uh, Louis de Molina in the Christian tradition, you had this in the Al Jabari, Al Qadariya, and you have this in, uh, in the philosophy, Spinoza, for example, and determinism is, is a, a known philosophy. Uh, now, my take on this is these are interpretations, and, and uh, there are other interpretations that you are experiencing your freedom. 
I would, I would be more simple on that. That you can come with whatever you want as a philosophy. What I know and I'm experiencing every day of my life is that I have a freedom. I experience this freedom. I can caress and I can kill. I can build and I can destroy. I can struggle for justice and I can be a passive citizen or human being. I can be that. And at the end of the day, my philosophy is to go from simple to something which is my responsibility. Now, whatever is your philosophy, that there, be, there could be no freedom, that you have the, don't have to deal with it, that's fine with me and even in the way we have to, to, uh, uh, to deal with, uh, uh, with it in our daily life. But with this simple answer that is transversal, crossing the board of all these traditions, that there is freedom and that we are experiencing freedom, my main concern is how do I get more freedom and how do I get this sense that I'm responsible of this freedom? What about this freedom that we are talking about? And my main point is really this one is to understand you know, the difference between spirituality and emotion. Because I deal with many people, they are driven by emotions and they think that they are free because they are emotional. And it's a trap. It's a trap. And, and it could be anything. You know, from, you know, in the book, I'm, I'm, I'm commenting on many, many situations that we had during the, the recent years. From, for example, the, 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 when uh, Diana, passed away, this huge emotional reaction. See, what is happening in Britain and around the world? It's as if a, a big figure, you know, Michael Jackson. And you think, okay, it's something which has to do with emotional reaction. A symbol died. On the other side, you have religious, emotional attitude, you know, with the cartoon, for example. I was in Pakistan. And with this one, 200,000 people in the streets, I, I was scared. Because it was so emotional, so tense. And they were driven not by religious attitude and spirituality, but emotional reactions. I think that this is a trap. This is the big jail of our time. The big jail. So how do you get from this uh, emotional reaction to something which is more intellectual or spiritual freedom. And even something that I can say is spiritual uh, intelligence and intellectual spirituality. How do you get that? How do you nurture this? This has to do with something which is something which has to do with the self that you have to go towards this journey. Uh, the, the journey for yourself in yourself. The second thing which is important, and, and it has to do with everything, you know. I'm just saying in the book that uh, the difference between spirituality and emotion is that uh, emotion is to spirituality with physical attraction, is to love. You have this, you know, uh, interaction here and, and this understanding. But the second thing which is important is critical thinking. Critical thinking, it's, it's the way to be free as well, is to reconcile ourselves with complexity, the semicolon. The complex sentence, not the yes and what, you know, this emotional binary. So this is a way to be free as well. And the second thing, which is also very important, it's to criticize our own system. 
it's never, and I think that I'm very happy with the question that I got first, is being part of a system or a structured society, knowing that I am a citizen, not to forget about human beings. Not to forget, for example, I'm just coming back from Africa. Not to forget that the blood of the Africans just being killed the way they are killed by AIDS in an every single day has the same values as our life. And it's not because we are British citizens that we have to forget our common humanity. This is the bit we free as well. I hope. Thank you. I think we've interrogated you quite long enough on the meaning of the quest for meaning. So once again, thanks from the LSE for coming to speak to us this evening and bringing the quest for meaning to us.